Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Hi, I'm Ron Huntley, your host. My guest today is Father Patrick Gilmurray, who's the pastor at St. Michael's Parish in Fort Erie, Ontario. Father Patrick is a member of a Catholic community of priests and brothers called the Missionaries of the Precious Blood, founded in 1815 by St. Gaspar de Buffalo. This episode is entitled, Called to the Priesthood. Enjoy the conversation. Lift off and the clock has started. The priesthood is such an important vocation. And I don't know how things are in your diocese, wherever you're listening around the world, but I know in Halifax, we don't have a lot of vocations. And I'd say several of the vocations that have come forward the last few years have been late vocations. People that have come, some of them with families, certainly a lot of them with life experience. And I think they're a really important part of this generation of being Catholic around the world. Today with me is Father Patrick Gilmurray from Ontario, and he too is a late vocation. Welcome to the show, Father Patrick. Hey, thanks so much, Ron. It's really a great thing to be here. <laughs> Listen, I would love to for our listeners to understand, and this is going to be new for me. You and I have been growing in a friendship as we get to know each other through coaching, but some of the things we're going to talk about today, I don't know the answers, and it's going to be a lot of fun for me. And so why don't you share with me a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, well, I, I grew up in Toronto, and uh, when I, I, I kind of drifted my way through school, including high school, and I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't follow any kind of it wasn't really discerning a career path in business or whatever, but uh, I found myself uh, just looking for work after high school um, and after a brief stint, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, so I, I, my first job was in a warehouse, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, for people's jewelers. So a lot of heavy lifting with those, you know, little diamonds and chains and stuff, right? A lot of money there. It's a lot of money floating around. Uh, but you know, when the warehouse moved together with the head office, I got to know some head office people. And and so eventually I made the jump into accounting and started taking CGA courses. Right. And, um, so that kind of uh, was one career shift. And, uh, from that point, I pretty much stayed in the, almost entirely stayed in the accounting and finance, uh, financial analysis world. Uh, through various companies, small and large. Um, household names would be like People's Jewelers in Canada, uh, GE Capital. Yeah. I uh, worked for them a couple of times. Uh, Kellogg's uh, worked for them. And uh, so in addition to finance uh, and financial analysis roles, I also did was associated with marketing in Kellogg's and uh, also had some, I guess what you'd call, what would be the term? Um, logistics management. Okay. Logistics management. Yeah. I guess that's a nice way of saying warehouse supervisor. <laughs> I have worked in a warehouse myself. <laughs> Not with jewelry though, just lumber and stuff like that. It was, <laughs> it was all kinds of things that, that give us experience. It's neat to, I, I, 
talked to a bishop, and I know that podcast would probably come out before this one, but he too had a finance power, a business background and finance. And it really is interesting that how that helps him evaluate the types of things that, that you have to do when you're in leadership in the church, because most churches are organizations of pretty significant size between volunteers and resources flowing through and in and out to, to be a blessing to others. So I'm sure that stuff helps. At what point did you experience your call to the priesthood? Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the call came fairly early, I guess. I, I remember, I remember the exact day, not the date, but I remember that it was Holy Thursday in my grade 11 year. And I went to Holy Thursday mass of the Lord's supper in my home parish. Yeah. The reason I went to mass, we were, we were I was raised in a practicing Catholic household and we were dragged to mass every weekend. Uh, and I hated it. Uh, and I'm pretty sure my brother and sister did too. And <laughs> it sounds like a pretty normal Catholic experience in Canada. <laughs> but, and so this one Holy Thursday, I was, Kind of sweet on a girl that lived a couple of doors down and she was going to go to this mass so hey i'll go too <laughs> so uh, i just remember there was one point in the mass probably after the uh, washing of the feet yeah and and all of a sudden i got this feeling came over me and it was i wonder if i wonder if god is calling me to do this to be a priest Wow. Now, I didn't understand the significance at the time, but the Mass of the Lord's Supper and the institution of the priesthood and all of that, I didn't know that at the time. I was there for a girl. God God got in the way, started talking to you. <laughs> Fill you with the Holy Spirit and just distract you all together. <laughs> and so uh, I remember that there, there was a transitional deacon there at the time that I had a, a friendship with. And so I approached him after Mass and uh, to talk to him. And at the time, my home parish had all-night adoration, all night, uh, was open all night from Holy Thursday through to Good Friday. And so he said to me, well, if you can, you know, my shift this night is, you know, between 1 and 4 in the morning. So if you want to come back, you know, between those hours... Well, I did. I went back and talked to him at like two in the morning. Wow. And um, anyway, I, you know, from that point on, I had kind of decided that after grade 13, we had grade 13 at the time, um, that I was going to go into formation. I was, I was going to go to the seminary. Right. Um, and I did. Um, I finished high school, um, coasting through everything. Not taking anything seriously, so uh, I we I went to the House of Formation in London, Ontario. That's where it was at the time. And it, because I coasted so bad that first semester, I had to make up a couple of high school courses. Sure, <laughs> I can relate to that too. Unfortunately, <laughs> and uh, so uh, while I was so in that first semester. Uh, didn't I meet another girl? And um, by the time that first semester was over, this was not compatible and wasn't going to work. Right. And so after the first semester, I left. Now, that girl was the sister of another guy who was in formation in that house. 
if you're going to go, if you're going to go, go, go big, go bigger, go home. <laughs> going to make a Bruta Figura, right? Make it big. Love is a funny thing. <laughs> so, um, so uh, that didn't work out, obviously. And, um, and so there became after months, you know, the, there was the need to find employment. And, uh, so I, I began looking for work, and the first job I could find was in working in a warehouse uh, for people's jewelers. And uh, within a couple of years, the company amalgamated where the warehouse was into the same building as the office, and I got to know some office people and got a transfer into inventory control, kind of an entry-level accounting function. Mm-hmm. And that's started taking CGA courses. And so from that point on, for the most part, my working career was finance, finance related, financial analysis. Cool. The call, it's funny. Um, I had, someone took a picture of me in a cassock with a collar in that sometime in that semester and gave me the picture. And I was sitting behind a desk and looking very priestly. Poser. Poser, absolutely. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and uh, for whatever reason, I carried that picture in my wallet. And uh, it's still in my wallet today. And so, in all the years that, that passed, which included uh, a descent into pretty strong alcoholism, hmm. Some, the idea that somehow, in some way, someday, I might be ordained a priest never entirely left me. Amazing. Amazing. And so, working? Working. Dealing with your demons and alcohol, and you're not the first man to wrestle with that or person. At what point did God, did you know that he wasn't done with you yet? I got word that a teacher of mine who I really respected, uh, uh, a brother, uh, an Irish Christian brother, um, who was beloved by everyone and had passed away and a a memorial mass for him was going to be held at my home parish of all places because he had no association there Hmm. Um, at my home parish. And uh, I decided that I would go because I I respected him so much. And for some reason I, I was ended up there going there early, deliberately early. And I sat in the back pew where all the best Catholics sit. And I just remember uh, in the silence of the place with the lights still off, thinking to myself, I miss this. The smell of the place, uh, just the ambient little noises here and there. And I, I sat there with my kind of bowed head down in the pew. And I looked up, and there's this massive crucifix behind the altar. 
And that's when that thought crossed my mind. I, I missed this. And I didn't do anything about it right away because I thought that I was just being sentimental. Mm-hmm. Ass. Yeah. I'd get over it. I'd recover. <laughs> and uh, in the days and weeks that, that followed, uh, it didn't. Mm. So uh, after a while, I decided to reach out to the, to the guy who was the pastor at that time. And I had met him a few times because my mom thought the world of him. And uh, so when I, I didn't really know what to do next, yeah. so I, I went to see him. And so, um, you know, he suggested, well, why don't you think about coming and uh, having a confession? Um, which I eventually did, made an appointment to go see him. I was in there for an hour, uh, bawling my eyes out most of the time. Um, it was a very cathartic uh, experience. Uh, came out with such a weight lifted. And he had uh, enough wisdom, I guess, to know that maybe after he watched and waited to see it wasn't going to be just a flash in the pan, that um, he would get me involved. Hmm. So pretty soon uh, he asked me to be a lector, which I had done before. Um, How old were you when this was happening? 39, 40-ish. Maybe a bit older than that. Okay. Um, And then after doing that for a while, he asked me, to, if I would get involved in RCIA, in coordinate, in kind of coordinating the RCIA team, which really was only, but it wasn't well developed, the whole team, the process and stuff. For our non-Catholic listeners, what's RCIA? Just share with them what that well, is. Right of, of Christian initiation for adults. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is the process by which an adult uh, can grow in discipleship, uh, and then uh, approach baptism. Love it. Uh, and there are stages in that. And, and so in that time that I, I took that responsibility very uh, seriously, and, and I found it very life-giving uh, to help others, to help adults answer their questions, uh, let them go through the stages first of inquiry, and then of uh, where they learn a lot about the, the church and, and the stands for and what it teaches, how it relates to their lives, and then eventually reach the sacrament of, sacraments of baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation, celebrated at the Easter Vigil. And in doing that work and in growing that program mm-hmm. to what the ritual envisions it to be a year round process uh, with different teams for different stages and so on. I found that so life-giving that eventually the idea started coming back to me. Maybe this is in fact what God wants me to do. Wow. Unbelievable. So what was next? 
So I had to, re so I, I reached out and, and I, this fellow was still uh, the pastor of, of my home parish. And I was, this is where I was exercising this ministry. And so I, I let him know. And then he put me in touch with the, the formator. Yep. And so I, I had to start taking some philosophy courses. Mm -hmm. Really hadn't done much. I had taken a little over a year's worth of university. Yep. But I didn't have a degree. Mm. And usually that's required to get a master's of divinity, which is the yep. degree that a priest needs to have. And um, but one requirement was for sure, and, and if I was going to start taking the coursework for a master's of divinity, I had to have prerequisites in philosophy. Yeah. So I, at the time, it was five courses, and for the University of Waterloo, they offer distance education. So I did five courses of philosophy for distance education, uh, and then uh, completed that requirement and, and could join for an formation again. Mm. That is fantastic. So how old were you when you were ordained a priest? I was ordained a priest uh, at 49 years of age. Hmm. What was that like? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I you know, the, the, the term late vocations, um, I, in my case, I was a later vocation. Right. Uh, right. And, and, because if I if I had somehow stuck it out the first time, I would have been a disaster. Mm. If I had been ordained the first time round, an utter disaster. And I'm not even talking about alcohol. Right. I didn't take that out of the picture. Sure. And I would have been a disaster because my notion of what a priest was was immature and completely wrong. Wow. Now, when you say that, what was your, and maybe you can't, but how did that shift? What, what, what needed to shift so that you could say like, cause you're, that you're very strong on that comment you just made. And so what needed to shift for you? What have you come to know about a priest that would have been different than you may have thought when you were younger? Well, when I was younger, uh, I, I was, I would have been of the very clerical mindset. I, I was actually probably trying to solve my own personal problems by being ordained, it would have been. Uh, it would be my way to be respected. It would be my way to be even on a pedestal. And my seeking that whole thing, right. At the, right, that whole business. And then after, you know, listen, after you, after you deal with a demon like alcoholism, mm. you know that you, <laughs> there's no way you, you belong on any pedestal. Mm. All to be still be there uh, really informed and influenced my outlook on what the ministry was, and so it really isn't about being on a pedestal. It's about helping other people get to Christ and serving the people in their midst. That gives me goosebumps, really, because the, to me that that battle that you had with alcohol was a gift. It certainly was. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. No, no, but it probably changes the way you are able to be present to people who are wrestling with different things. For sure. And in a way, I'm, I'm thankful. Yeah. Because I grew up in a very stable family, and I was very blessed to have that, that upbringing. 
And sometimes when I go into our schools and in classrooms and I'm dealing with kids, it's really hard for me to relate to some of the, some of the kids and, and maybe even a good percentage of kids who don't have a family, a stable family background. And how many times do I just assume everybody had a background like mine? Right. Right. When I'm, I'm speaking out of, you know, and I don't have, I don't have the appreciation for their reality. But here's the flip side of that. I, in this case, my stable family upbringing is in a sense a limiting factor. Uh, I have to constantly be aware of it, right? Mitigate it. But my alcoholism certainly is the reverse of that. I can absolutely relate to anyone who's suffering from addiction mm. of any kind. Absolutely. We're doing, I know at the time of this taping, we're in Lent and we're just about to launch our mission this tonight. And it's going to run three different Wednesdays because it's all online anyway. So, and, uh, and it's called the ultimate comeback. And the first one is going to be a sports. We have a sports figure coming on and going to be sharing. And the second one is a man who's wrestled with alcoholism and and now it's his ministry is, is going and helping others. And he's just a super guy and you know, has dealt with a fair degree of loss and suffering. And, uh, but he's turned that all, all for good. And it's just so exciting that he's going to be able to speak tonight. Or sorry, not tonight, but next Wednesday. Well, so, and I just think God, you know, God's not finished with us ever. I think about the man on the cross, right? Uh, the robber. Uh, you know, wait till the last minute. So, I, so the difference between late and later, you know, <laughs> I, uh, in terms of vocation. Yeah. So I just had a flashback to my ordination. The bishop who ordained me as a deacon uh, was a fairly new bishop, and I was his first diaconate ordination. And uh, so he, six, eight months later, he ordained me a priest, and I was his first priesthood ordination as a bishop. So um, he, during, he starts his homily. And he, he, at one point, he says, well, you, Patrick, are an old, so-and-so prophet was an old prophet called, you know, at an older age. And you, Patrick, are an old vocation. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the first <laughs> And I, I, I turned to my family around me. I'm not letting that go. <laughs> and I shout out, older. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> And he stopped and he, and he paused for a second, kind of half looked in my direction and kind of nod. Okay. Older. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I bet you didn't forget that <laughs> or anybody else there. I love that. So what's been your experience? Because, you know, there's priest isn't easy. Isn't easy. We we're just talking before we came on the, the, the string of funerals that you've had to celebrate because a lot of deaths in your, in your community in the last month or so. And, and boy, you can't plan for that. And so that that's, it's, it's hard. And, and so what's been your experience? So I was in, uh, I was sent to this, this particular church I'm at now. Um, and I was here two days after ordination and um, I was here for two years. And then I moved to Toronto 
for a year to be mission director for our order, the Missionaries of the Precious Blood. And I spent a year there and then came back here. So when I was here for the two years initially, I was the associate pastor, of course. And when I came back the second time, I came back pastor. Hmm. So after three years, only two in a parish, uh, I came back here as pastor. And I think what made that possible was the fact that I, I wasn't a 20-something or, you know, that I had life experience, uh, that I had some background in business. And it, let me tell you, it, it's all useful experience. Mm. So managing people. Yeah. And Is that your pen I hear clicking? <laughs> I'm just laughing because we talked about that. <laughs> so funny. You're not the only one who does that. I'll just play with you. <laughs> it wasn't my pen. It was my USB stick. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> no, it's okay. So all that's so like managing people, dealing with finance, all that life experience, you're able to bring that. And to your point, become a pastor really soon after ordination, relatively speaking, but probably because you have that experience. Okay. When we were here, you know, I was here with a very, uh, I was here with a great pastor. When that first few years as, as, as an associate, I could not have had a better pastor to be with. Everyone should be as lucky as I was to have the pastor that I worked with. Uh, those first couple of years can be make or break. Right. If you, you know, if, if you don't have a good experience, I don't know what the numbers are, but people leaving the priesthood in the first five years mm. um, is, uh, it's, it's pretty high. Um, so my, my first pastor uh, it was also at the time my provincial. And so he was the head of our province of the order, mm. kind of like a bishop to us. And he gave me a lot of latitude, just trusting that I would use the gifts that I had and the experiences I had acquired in my working life for the that that it would be beneficial used in the parish. So we incorporated a substantial debt here. We, we, we inherited it. And he let me take charge of dealing with that with the parish. Right. And so I think for, I think, I think it may have been initially a bit of a surprise when we had to confront this debt very early on in our tenure here. And the pastor is sitting in the back of the hall and I'm running the meetings, you know, the town hall meetings. That's a neat experience. It's a neat, ex yeah, it is. Um, but he and I worked so well together. We, and it was, we were, our, our gifts and our interests and our skills were complementary that way. Yes. But he, he had the maturity and the wisdom to recognize Right, not to feel he needed to take center stage when he saw that, hey, I have a, a fellow here with who loves Jesus, loves the church, and has incredible gifts and that I don't have. Yeah, good for him. That does take a lot of humility and, and maturity. Love that. What do you find the most rewarding part of your priesthood? Ron, 
it's when there's a couple of things that, that jump out right away. First of all, and maybe this is because I, I had a funeral yesterday, so it's fresh, but generally speaking, when, when you're able, and not every funeral is like this, but when you're able to be a comfort to people who are facing what often is the biggest desolation in the loss of a loved one, when you can bring them peace and comfort and, and help them heal, uh, there's no feeling like that. Mm. Right? Um, and in, in non-crisis times, in the, in the same kind yeah. of thing, when you can go to the hospital and do an anointing, the family is present and they have that kind of experience that you bring peace and comfort. Um, the other thing is in, in flip side is when you experience, when you celebrate with people the good time and you and people invite you into their lives in both the good and the bad times in ways that you wouldn't get invited if you were just anyone. Mm-hmm. Being a parish priest, you get invited into people's lives at their tenderest moments, positive and negative. Mm. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? What do you find the biggest struggle? Well, it's exacerbated. I, I think the biggest struggle, you know, we're, as a, I feel, four years ago when I read the book Divine Renovation, mm-hmm. I felt a deep uh, call. I, I thought I was being everything that a priest was supposed to be. I was looking after my flock and I was doing the best that I could at it. And, and I think the people would agree that, that I, by and large, was doing a good job. But then when that becomes not the most important thing, but the most important thing was to bring people's gifts out, to empower them, equip them, inspire them, to go and make other disciples. When you, and you're, you're doing nothing <laughs> to make that happen. Because out of sheer ignorance <laughs> to make that happen. Nobody told me in the seminary that that was part of the job description. Right. Right. Yeah. When you realize that it is, it's, uh, man, is that, that's a paradigm shift to say the least. It just. And so the biggest struggle is as, as we start to turn that corner as a parish, there is a sense of isolation because we're not in step with other parishes and I'm not in step with other priests right now. Right. Mm. Not all of that, you know, and, and maybe not most of them. Uh, there are a couple, there are, there are some, right? Yes. And so we, we make an effort to stay connected. Yeah. But, but it is a movement. It is starting to grow. And so absolutely there's, there's hope. But at the current time, especially in COVID, um, there is the kind of isolation that can come from being the only one around, it seems, yeah. who's working at this parish transformation or taking it even seriously, even wants to admit that this is part of the game. I remember 
being at the Alpha Conference in Denver just over a year ago, and uh, the Alpha USA coordinator had reached out to some of the parishes that he's in communication with, and I sat down and just kind of did a group coaching session with several of them. And it was so fun because I, at the beginning, I just went around and said, hey, let me know where you're from. Tell me a little bit about your church. And these two guys that were sitting beside each other are from the same diocese, and they had no idea that each other were engaged in this pursuit of really becoming missional. And they were so excited to find each other because they were afraid to talk about it in their diocese because it just, it's maintenance mode, baby. Like, it's like status quo all the way. Don't lift your head up. Do not lift your head up. <laughs> so, so it was so fun for me. And they connected immediately. Like, it was just like they were, Siamese twins separated at birth, like they were so happy to yep. be able to connect outside of that one hour time frame we had together. And so I get it. It can be lonely. My guess is even as I hear you say that, you know, the things that that you love to do, you probably, particularly once COVID's over, um, you're probably not going to be able to have as much time to do those things because yes, because your time shifts, doesn't it? As you begin to see your your primary responsibilities to evangelize and mobilize and care, but probably in that order, then all of a sudden that changes your schedule for the week. And yet you probably find yourself in more meetings, mobilizing people and forming people. Do you like, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that's going to be a cost, but you know, uh, in the in the kickstart that I took with you last year, yes, our program. Um, you know, one of my key learnings that that has stuck with me since is loving people through systems. Right. So I don't have to be in the room. Right. I don't because if it, if I do have to be in the room, then it's about me. Right. So if if as long as we're creating systems. And and I'm encouraging and inspiring, equipping whatever uh, others, so that somebody is there, somebody who's gifted and competent. And you know, to as long as the ministry is being done, it doesn't have to be me. That's huge. That's huge because think about what I, when I asked you, what's the most precious part, or what's the most gratifying part of being a priest? You told me to be there for people in their most tender moments when it's good and bad. And now what I'm hearing you say is that you're sharing that with other people because you're allowing people to be built up in ministries and then to begin to do ministries like that. Because if your church is really healthy, you're not the only person invited into those situations. They do reach out to people they've come to know as spiritual leaders within their church. And you don't have to be ordained to be a spiritual leader in somebody else's life. You don't have to be ordained to lay hands and pray on people and to, to bring them to Christ in their darkest moments. And so I just, I, what a paradigm shift. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> because really it's, well, it's impossible. One person can't do this. So, and especially, one person can barely do maintenance, let's be honest. Amen. If one person is doing everything, maintenance, is, even maintenance is not going to be done well. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's so true. And the whole idea of, of, of transitioning that and, and releasing other people, building up other people, identifying other people, training other people to share in the ministry of Christ, <laughs> to bring healing, hope, joy to others is so, so cool. But my guess is if I've been used to having you as a priest who did care for my needs, who was there for me when this happened last time, and now all of a sudden you're less accessible, you're less available, does that cause some tension in some of the parishioners? Like, you're, hey, guy down the street's there every time somebody needs him. What's the matter with you? How come you think you're so important? Like, do you get any of that? <laughs> Yeah, there there is there is a, a a transition phase, right? When a parish is used to the personal touch, mm-hmm. uh, and and but there, that just that's just a, a question of formation. Yes. And when when the rationale is explained to people, they understand. Mm. And as long as you're not just plugging holes within the old body with a pulse. Yeah. Right. That's a decent strategy that's been used for a while. <laughs> you got to, you're breathing, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, yeah, as long as the people who are taking, who you are inspiring, have gifts, have a calling, and so that the ministry is being done well, even people who initially might get their noses out of joint that it's not you as the pastor. Yes. If if their needs are met by a, a lay person, then they're no if, if they're if they're met and met well, then the transition in time is a very short good. That's a neat perspective. So make sure the quality of people that you're drawing forward, training, raising up, are the people that can really do a nice job, a good job. Because at the end of the day, you're not bringing people to you. You're bringing people to Jesus. Right. Right? So good. So what advice do you have for people? Because I know that making that transition for some priests is terrifying because of pushback. Like, it's so discouraging having people who are committed and care about you and invested in the church complaining and upset with you. And, and it's going to happen from time to time. I mean, there's no way to be in leadership and not disappoint people from time to time. But if you let that disappointment paralyze you, that's what advice would you have for, for them? And maybe even for the parishioners, because it's not just priests that listen to our show, it's parishioners as well. So I would say that I we really didn't get in my first four years, let's say, I didn't really experience much in the way of pushback because I wasn't leading. Hmm. I was celebrating the sacraments and preaching the word, but I wasn't leading. And I was doing the other two things well enough that people were happy enough. And so but for the most part, there was no pushback. As soon as you start to kind of lead, especially when you start trying to point out to people that there's more, there's more that they could do. Uh, Not everybody is gung-ho for more. True. Uh, You know, many people are, are comfortable the way things are. So, 
advice for anyone, I would say, for me, the team, my leadership team, um, identify four or five people you can gather around yourself. Hmm. Uh, not, not ordained necessarily. I have four, I have three lay people on my leadership team, but who who share the vision of what a parish in on mission can look like. And when they share the vision of what our parish on mission could look like, get enthusiastic about that and energized about that, then that's really all the support that I need. Yeah. Uh, to stick my head up. Because <laughs> you're not alone anymore. No, I'm not alone anymore. Hmm. And And when they start attracting people, you know, in the areas that they support that are like-minded as well. Then it, it just, it just grows and grows. I'm so excited for you. I'm so, it's fun to watch. It does take time. It's so cool to hear your transition, both your story, your background, uh, the call on your life, and and then the transition of your parish, your understanding of your priesthood and, 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 the paradigm shift that took place and how you're mobilizing people. That's so cool. If there are people listening that also got a call at a younger age and, and may or may not have acted on it, but still maybe are growing in their awareness that maybe God's still calling them to the priesthood. What would you say to them? I would say, don't rule it out. Mm. First of all, don't dismiss it. Um, maybe, maybe if, if it's been with you for a while, then share it with someone you trust. Mm. Share what's in your heart with someone you trust. Um, if there's, if there's someone trained, if you could get a hold of someone trained in vocational discernment, uh, then it's worthwhile seeking that person out and having a conversation. Love it. I love it. Because the priesthood, I, I love the vocation of the priesthood. We In our Roman Catholic tradition, it's such a pivotal role. And when it's done with an attitude like yours of mobilizing others, like just releasing others in the ministry of Christ so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other and to those that don't even know him yet, that's unbelievable. Like what a difference you can make in the world of, of putting good in the world. It's awesome. And, you know, I, in my first four years of priesthood, I, I, it, was a, it was a real blessing. I mean, uh, everybody has ups and downs, uh, but I, it was such a fulfilling thing. But I had no idea how much more fulfilling this is now. Uh, when I can sit back and watch others blossom, just others just catch fire with the Holy Spirit and just go and change their own little parts of the world. And that's something through the systems that God has chosen us to, to, to uh, try to instill here and install here. That's just the, that's better than any maintenance could ever be. <laughs> Uh, it explodes, and, 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 and not just quantifiably, but qualitatively, too. Yeah. 
And I'm amazed at how rich the tapestry can be when other people are involved in evangelization, when they can add their own flavors to things, their own approaches to things. It's mind-blowing what God can do through a group of people, never mind like one or two. It's <laughs> so encouraging and so inspiring. I am so grateful that you were able to join me today to just unpack your story, to, to, to learn about your call that God put on your life. Thanks for your vocation. Thanks for everything you're doing in your parish and to your leadership team and all your parishioners. It's just wonderful. Well, thank you, Ron, for your vocation (laughs) and for your coaching. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. God bless you, brother. All right. I love Father Patrick's vulnerability when sharing about the call that God had on his life. His journey was not at all a straight line. It was full of ups and downs, yet here he is continuing to show up and give his best to the call that God put on his life all those years ago. If you felt encouraged or inspired by something Father Patrick said today, share it with us by leaving a review on the podcast. Also, feel free to follow the podcast so the latest episodes are automatically added to your library. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. encourage you as you lead this week be faithful to God and generous to others see you next time and remember if you're still breathing you are powered for impact